Okay, welcome back. Thank you for being here. Uh, I hope people are doing all right with the uh, coronavirus global situation. And um, I hope people are thinking, seeking to think clearly and seeking to carefully understand. Um, it's good to look at many sources. It's critical to think for yourself. It's critical to understand that every single source presents some aspects of truth and mistake, or truth and falsity. Some of the falsity is deliberate, some of the falsity is simply um, unintended or, or um, non-malicious <laughs> uh, non repeating of falsehood the person heard and now believes um, because they haven't really thought more deeply enough to see that it's false. So, innocently repeated falsehood, maliciously spread falsehood, uh, lack of understanding, conceit and arrogance um, is all, all over the place as basis uh, of the information that's coming at us to try to understand the current situation. So it's very important to um, carefully consider and use both analysis and intuition or logical, rational, clear reasoning, step-by-step, -step, linear, uh, comparative, and um, logical, and intuition, and check in with our heart feeling about what's really happening or any question we have to find answers. Anyway, it's a real problem, and um, these are the 3D end days. Today, um, this is the episode number five in the series on Nityananda and uh, what we can learn from his life and times and work and being. Last time we completed the, we're working from the text Nityananda in Divine Presence, um, compiled by a Captain Hatengi, who was a devotee and then organized into public, for publication by a Swami Chetanyananda. Last time we finished the chapter Mangalore Days of Rail Travel, 1922-1933. Today we'll start with the next chapter, which is... Um, Kanangad's Rock Ashram, 1925-1936. So we're back and forth in the dates, um, basically more associated with locations in South India, particularly Kerala, um, Mangalore, Bangalore area, Kanangad, Udipi, and um, last time there was this final point about an experience that I, I think is worth understanding, uh, worth repeating for deeper understanding, the last two paragraphs of the previous chapter about rail travel, uh, which read, perhaps the most extraordinary incident of this period, which was uh, in the mid-30s, most extraordinary incident of this period occurred in a devotee's house in Falnir just before sunset while they sat before him in meditation, 
Those present were suddenly disturbed by a blinding flash of light on the wall behind Nityananda. They opened their eyes to find him motionless on his knees in a yoga posture, which was Vira Padmasana, with his eyes closed. Afraid to touch him, they lit lamps and tried to see if he still breathed. Finding no signs of life, they decided that he had taken Mahasamadhi and invited people to come for their last darshan with the body. Most devotees soon returned to their homes, some sad and disappointed that the young sadhu left them, so he's only in his mid-thirties here. <clears throat> some hopeful he would return, and some thinking that he had overdone his breathing exercise. So as usual, <laughs> people have a range of responses and interpretations and do their best at understanding and uh, not any of them are complete. Mrs. Krishnabai was one of the few who stayed behind, maintaining a vigil throughout the night and following day. That afternoon, Nichinanda suddenly moved. He stretched his limbs and was immediately helped to a bed. He wore a strange look and recognized no one for quite some time. After questioning, he admitted that he had gone for good, but five divine beings persuaded him to return, saying that it was too soon. During his remaining years, the master never spoke of it again. And so, <clears throat> um, again, a, an epistemological hmm, footnote. Epistemology is the study of the theory of knowledge or knowledge or understanding or comprehension. Uh, even his explanation is not complete. Even his understanding may or may not be complete. It's maybe adequate for him. I don't know. It's a, he's way above me. I can't even know. So we don't know the, the mind of those beyond us or more evolved than us. Their accounting of their experience is inevitably incomplete as well. And so there's always more that can be known. And there's always much that's not being said. And um, the interpretations of the people around him are all mm, partial. They understand a little. The, the, the problem is arrogance and conceit and vanity and pride. Assuming you know for sure and you know it all. A, a assumption of total understanding. Assumption of, uh, of absolute uh, veracity or correctness. These, these are dangerous, and you have to be careful. And so it's very good to be realistic, which leads to humility, which is an understanding that the totality, really, of everything, metaphysically even, I mean, ontologically, the nature of being, the nature of all of our, you know, so this is a, a phenomenological, ontological epistemology, meaning the nature of the being or it's the true nature of phenomena and our comprehension of it um, you know is way beyond uh, completion and totality and, and full comprehension our, our knowing of anything is very very limited this is not a little point and so five divine in this particular case he had died or left the body. Um, it may have been by his breathing practice. It may have been that he just, as I said last time, wasn't trying to stay anchored in the body. 
he was he got too high, or the pranic flow from root to crown wasn't modulated by a deep mind intention to stay in the incarnation, and then he left. But then, according to his story, which is not complete, and he much know more. He knows more than he said, and there's more than he knows. Five divine beings uh, persuaded him to return, saying it was too soon. And as I said, they're keeping the clock. They're on the clock. They know what's going on. His planetary function during the 20th century, they know. And he didn't know. How about that? And so maybe that's because he was uh, 35, and maybe when he was 40 or 60, he knew all. I don't know. It's beyond me. <clears throat> but um, his, his, as I've said before, um, Nichinanda, the, the life and times of Bhagwan Sri Nichinanda, is really, I think, a demonstration of logoic intervention. Um, he was not a human who had a human life. He was um, a logoic uh, representative who did a planetary function. Who, who performed was here for planetary service to the to to the collective of humanity and particularly planetary evolution overall it seems to me and he never spoke of what he was really doing here either <laughs> so we go to the next chapter Kanangad's rock ashram 1925 to 1936 <clears throat> there seems to be a little white noise on the line today not not right now but I'm sorry for those at home who hear it. Um, it's uh, just what happens sometimes. I don't know why. So, let me do something here. Yeah. So the story goes, the chapter, Kanangad's rock ashram about his building of an ashram. And this is 1925-1936 again. And he is about 30 to 40 years old here. Before leaving South Kanara, around 1925, meaning around age 30, Nichinanda began spending long periods in Kanangad. Initially, he chose the jungle area called Guruvana, or Guruvan, Guruvan, for his, his rock ashram. Devotees, the note is that devotees believe Nichinanda was found abandoned here in that Guruvana area as an infant. Guruvana, Guruvan, lies several miles from a second temple that was dedicated to Nichinanda in 1966. Going on, evidence indicates that he inhabited a certain jungle cave where he discovered a skeleton seated in a lotus position surrounded by pots and other personal effects. A yogi who died in Padmasana, or the full lotus posture perhaps. Nichinanda is said to have disposed of it in an unknown manner, this story came from an elderly woman in Kerala who fed Nityananda during this time. She also said that at the rear of the cave was once an entrance, now blocked off, to a hall that could seat several hundred people. Nityananda often said that beyond the hill in Guruvana were many saints in Samadhi. Some people believe he was associated with this particular spot in a previous incarnation, and that the skeleton was either his own or of someone he knew. <clears throat> so it's an important place for spiritual practice. Regardless, 
It was here that Nichinanda struck a rock from which sprang water that has flowed ever since. Nearby, he placed eight stone balls, thought to represent the occult powers achieved through yogic discipline or the cities, and a tank to collect the spring water. When B.H. Mehta built the temple in 1966, he added a spout called Papana, Papashini, Pampana, Papanashini, or Papanashini, Papanashini Ganga, Ganga meaning Ganges, for the water to pass through. For many years, Swami Janandananda tended the area, converting the jungle into spiritual paradise. He, rebu- he rebuilt the tank as well, constructed a road to the temple, and replaced the stone balls with eight stone linga-like structures. I wouldn't have done that. He also made a small shrine for Malbir, the area's protecting saint. So you've, and, it, and that's more of a nature spirit, um, or a spirit or entity associated with the nature spirits associated with the location. And so now you see we're not just talking about amazing stories, but we're talking about him getting to work or him getting to the work of establishing structures, infrastructure for people uh, for the future. Nichinanda's work on the Kalangad Fort, meaning that area that he was developing, started around 1927. Again, he's uh, in his early 30s. First, he built a road, still used, from the traveler's bungalow up to the rock temple and ashram. He then began clearing the jungle growth that overran the dilapidated compound. Historically, the site belonged to a long lineage of chieftains. At one time, it was in the hands of the Tulu dynasty, who ruled from Mangalore to Kanangat. This is a long time ago. Nichinanda began the project to the consternation of local authorities, who pestered him with questions about his activities and whether he had permission. The master always responded that he was clearing the jungle for their future offices, a prediction that eventually came to pass. Meaning he could see how that area would be used in future decades. Once the fort was cleared of overgrowth, Nichinanda turned his attention to the rock itself, which is where the temple erected him, which is where the temple erected to him in 1963 now stands. He wanted caves hewn from the rock and, without engineers or blueprints, directed everything down to the most minute detail. So, basically, um, carving uh, with simple tools the rocks there. The task was formidable. Using no equipment, workers carved out the caves by hand. Within three years, some 40 caves stood nearby, or stood ready, properly cemented and plastered inside and out. Most were large enough for a person to sit and rest. There were six entrances, three faced east and three faced west, resulting in continuous light in the passages from sunrise to sunset. With work proceeding on the interior of the compound, Nichinanda often worked on the exterior. He made the steps and lingas with his own hands. Lingas is a phallic symbol uh, of Shiva worship, like Shiva's phallic, or symbol of that. Following a visit to the caves in 1945, 
Captain Hatengi asked him about their symbolism. He replied that they represented the brain and its six passages, meaning some the caves as passages of the brain. <clears throat> At one point, a well was dug within the cave complex, but Nichinanda later ordered it closed. Today, an outside well is the current ashram's main water source. Local laborers received their pay at the end of each day. Swami Janandananda recalled that the foreman usually collected the money from beneath a tree, but sometimes the workers, workers filed past Nichinanda. Opening and then closing his empty fist, he would drop the exact wages into each recipient's hand. One day, a delegation of local authorities arrived and asked him about the source of these wages. Without a word, Nichinanda led them to the waterlogged field beside the rock, dived in, <clears throat> and emerged with a bag full of currency. He told the astonished men that a crocodile in the depths always supplied the amount he needed. He then added that they were free to find it themselves. Otherwise, he offered to bring up the beast for them to see. <laughs> Feeling that they had been ridiculed yeah, by this yogi in a loincloth, the angry delegates immediately reported the unauthorized construction. They told Mr. Gon, the British tax official in South Kanara, that a crazy sannyasi was paying workers with money from unknown and mysterious sources. <clears throat> it seemed that Mr. Gon long gone now, had heard of Nichinanda's remarkable activities in Mangalore and decided to see for himself. Arriving at the Kanangad railway station, he proceeded on horseback, accompanied by his dog, along the road built by the master. Reaching the rock compound, he stopped and looked around. Nichinanda was in a cave below the ruins of the fort's south side. Here, the, dis the dog discovered him and started to bark. He emerged from the cave, and Mr. Gon, Gaon, still on horseback, is a British fellow, it seems, asked him why he was doing all this work and for whom. Nichinanda replied in English, Not for this one, meaning himself. If you want it, you may have it. As the words were uttered, a change came over the British official. Turning, he ordered the local authorities to leave Nichinanda alone and allow him free reign of the site. He added that the source of funds was of no concern as long as no one complained of being swindled or robbed. Imagine his surprise when, riding on horseback back to the station, he saw the words Gaon or Gone, Gaon Road on the newly erected road sign. <laughs> so Nikjananda manifested <clears throat> a sign on that road saying this fellow, this British official's family name, as the name of the road, on his way back from their first conversation. And so, <laughs> how do uh, white British fellows, white British uh, bureaucrats, face um, the cities uh, of a logoic yogi? <laughs> uh, he, he did all right, Mr. Gaon, Goni, but um, uh, it didn't spark his, his seeking, perhaps. Who can say? Going on. One cloudy day in the monsoon season, Nichinanda was stretched out on the rock. Suddenly, a man approached and demanded to have God revealed to him. 
demanded. The master told him to go away. When the man became more bombastic, Nichinanda grabbed his umbrella and pointed it at the man's toe. Devotees said that the man's dormant kundalini energy, rendered active, must have suddenly risen up his spine to the brahmaranda, meaning the crown chakra, at the top of his head. Anyway, the man screamed and fainted. Reviving, he stumbled to the government hospital for treatment. The doctor in charge reported Nichinanda to the police as crazy and possibly dangerous. The police promptly took him before the local magistrate <clears throat> when Nichinanda declared that, quote, this one did nothing. The magistrate asked whether there were witnesses. <laughs> the master pointed at the four pillars in the hall and was ordered to jail for insolence. Meaning, <laughs> his witnesses were the four pillars in the hall. <laughs> the uh, god nature of the rock uh, could vouchsafe that only God did, only God does action, uh, and therefore Nityananda did nothing himself. It was just the action of God. So you can see at this time in his life, um, <clears throat> he's <clears throat> uh, basically um, making inroads to his, his uh, establishing his social position, which is one of <laughs> the yogi who has ashram uh, where people come for guidance and uh, help, to get help. And um, by that, he's having various run-ins with the local, the current local um, political authorities, with their very limited understanding, and um, interfacing with them in his own way. Uh, but you see, he's really quite—he's he, not playing for them. He's not um, hateful. He's not vengeful. He doesn't hate their ignorance. I mean, their ignorance is massive. Massive ignorance compared to him. Um, he doesn't try to make it easy for them. Um, he also doesn't try to make trouble for them, I think. And so, anyway, I'll go into that a little bit more, but how he handles these bewildered and... Um, very mentally challenged, limited officials and and uh, authorities, so-called human authorities, is very um, useful to study as a uh, teaching or, or as an example we can learn from or at least apply to our own dealings with Earth humanity in some way, in our own way, in in our own particular way there is a perspective that he's showing that's being shown here by how he handles them that pertains to how we handle um, the people around us particularly the authorities or those that think that they have some importance because of their social role soon the prisoner and this was the story we had early long ago looked into so they ordered him to jail for being insolent Actually, he's being honest, but they're too, they're too stupid to understand it, and they're too arrogant to ask. Soon the prisoner announced his, his need to urinate. Given a receptacle, he rapidly filled it. 
another was supplied, which he again filled to the brim. A water jug was offered next. When it overflowed, the constable hurried off to find the magistrate who, who agreed to release this mysterious person. Today, they just put him into... into <laughs> they would just torture him. Meanwhile, the interfering doctor from the hospital, another fellow, went home to discover his wife dancing naked around the house in an apparent state of insanity. The alarmed man rushed first to the police station where, hearing of Nityananda's release, he proceeded to the rock ashram. Begging forgiveness, he was waved away by the master and returned home to find his wife in her normal state. In these early days, so you see, he's also, he's doing his work, but he's also treating the arrogant appropriately. He's not bending his head to make easy explanation for the arrogant and the aggressive and the small-minded. But he's also not deliberately hurting them. He's also actually intending, he's actually helping them. Did he make this wife go insane? I don't know. Did he um, wave his hand, wave the, this uh, interfering doctor away and thereby release the wife? Did he do a hex on the wife? I would hope not. Um, what happened? I don't know. I don't know. But uh, I don't see him vengeful, uh, but I also don't see him um, compromising himself to help them. Compromising his explanations to help them understand because of their little minds. I don't see that. But I don't see any aggression, although, you know, people see different things. And if you see aggression, and I don't, are you right? Are you sure you're right? Are you sure I'm wrong? How do you know you're right? If you think I'm wrong, and I'm not, you know, most people on, who are listening at this stage, um, we find common ground. We have uh, similar views, you and me. But there are people who don't. Mm, uh, uh, there are people in the world, obviously. Most people in the world will not agree with our interpretation of all sorts of things. And they're sure they're right and you're wrong. How are they sure? <laughs> Based on what? Are, is the basis of their certainty any greater or more durable than the basis of our certainty or our sense of our opinion, which is opposite theirs? <laughs> What's the basis of their certainty? Is it more reliable than our basis of uh, surmise or belief or certainty? <laughs> really? So, you know, <laughs> this is a planet of foolish minds. And if you know your mind is small and weak and limited, uh, that's good. That doesn't mean you're a shithead. Self is a being of infinite worth, yes. But this mind we're using is very, very limited. And, and it ain't much unless you work on it. So uh, the great mm, compiler of um, some stories um, of Buddhist uh, masters and, and teaching, the Tripitaka, we talked about this, I forgot his name, who memorized 16,000 pages and things like that, could, could memorize thousands of pages of text. That's a potential of the human mind, far beyond mine, far beyond yours. And so, um, 
arrogance and ignorance is very unhelpful and yet it's all over us or all over around us and we're swimming in the sea of um, delusion in the collective mind um, so that we, we shouldn't um, bend we shouldn't contort ourselves to help the willfully distorted if they wish to know what we think we know or our view then great then let's share and talk um, but if they don't I don't think we have to contort ourselves to help them when they show no real sincere interest in learning so there are all sorts of very subtle points here that <clears throat> that that can be gleaned or or ought to may well be profitably contemplated from the story of Nityananda dealing with these authorities in these early days going on, Swami Jananda, Janandananda noted other unusual occurrences around Nityananda. Often, for, ex for, ex for instance, he would emerge from the water tank following his morning bath with his body and loincloth loin cloth completely dry. He was also seen walking or waking, you know, walking in the rain without getting wet. Mm -hmm. One evening, the master asked for a bottle of arak, the local fermented beverage. Drinking it, he asked for seven more bottles and finished them in quick succession. <laughs> Mr. Vira from Kumbla, a heavy drinker himself, could not believe his eyes and asked Nityananda why he did this. He replied that it was for the spirit haunting the rock who, now satisfied, would harm no one in the future. <clears throat> meaning there was probably uh, a, a version of Suchiloma or one of the Yakshas uh, inhabiting, haunting the rock, meaning uh, a local nature spirit type astral entity um, or a deceased human um, who um, was... Uh, was given um, the experience of the uh, eight bottles of liquor that Nityananda voluntarily drank, I guess, on his behalf. It's a, a kind of propitiation, spirit, local, astral, nature, spirit, propitiation, by taking the alcohol and giving it to that entity, metaphysically, that Nityananda did. So he's also serving the local yakshas. Visitors to the temple today can still see a small stone in front <clears throat> during worship. The arati is waved before this stone as well as before Nityananda's statue. It is said that a powerful spirit once inhabited the site. Older Kanangad residents remember being told as children that those passing the stone without pouring arak on it would suffer some illness. So this is the stone associated with that nature spirit <clears throat> and or is the stone that the nature spirit or that entity um, lives by um, it may be different over time going on about a kilometer north of the rock ashram is an area called Kushalnagar Kushalnagar here in 1931 the master's in his mid-thirties now the master built a round table out of stone and called it the Round Table Conference, like in London. 
<clears throat> Here he would sit at his table and speak of various world issues, relating first the views of other world leaders and then those of Gandhi, telepathically received. Now, at this very time, there happened to be an international conference taking place in London. Skeptics among the master's listeners who checked the newspaper accounts of the, quote, real roundtable conference were amazed to find that they coincided exactly with Nichinanda's words. And so that's associated with his, I mean, why is he even looking into that, right? Because he has some work associated with um, those politics. As work on the Kanangad Caves neared completion in 1933, Nichinanda once again embarked on a period of frequent and often unpredictable travel. Sallying forth between Kanangad and Ganeshpuri, he might appear in Vajrashwari, Gokarn, Kaneri, Bombay, or anywhere. One day, as he sat under a tree near the rock caves, three local Muslims arrived to stand reverently before him, we heard this story in the initial um, overview of his life. As he had many Muslim devotees, this was not surprising. <clears throat> Having just returned from their Hajj pilgrimage to Mecca, they were asked by the Master what they had seen there. They replied, We saw you there, Swamiji, and have come to pay homage. Nichinanda turned his face with a faint smile on his lips. <clears throat> Similarly, he was seen in many places around Bombay. Achutta Mama, sounds very Amazonian, a devotee from Udipi, tells how the master asked him to dig a small grave-like pit in the sands of Chaupati and bury him in it. Alarmed, the man then watched as people unwittingly walked over the spot where Nichinanda was buried in the sand. After about 30 minutes, Nichinanda sprang from the sand and asked his companion to take him home. This happened several times until one day he requested a much deeper pit. When he did not crawl out at the usual time, Achuttamama grew anxious but continued to wait. Finally, three hours later, Nichinanda emerged and casually explained that he had had business in Delhi. So he left his body in a very safe, he needed to leave his body in a safe place, a place where nobody would bother it for a few hours. He was a regular visitor to Mrs. Muktabai's Bombay home at this time. Once she and her mother went to the town of Nasik along the Godavari River for a change of climate. While they were away, Nichinanda insisted on managing the house for his devotee's husband and attending to the household chores himself. And that's it. <laughs> in 1934 or 35, he reportedly moved to Akroli near Vajreshwari. Vajreshwari. Here he repaired the hot springs tanks and the nearby Nat temple. Uh, that's a certain type of uh, Hindu group, I believe, Nat. He also built a charity hostel, hostel across from the Vajreshwari temple and supervised the construction of a well that's still the site's primary water source. As usual, his followers discovered his whereabouts, meaning he just went there on his own. One of these faithful was Sitarama Shenoy, whom Nichinanda asked to open a restaurant across from the Vajraswari temple. 
Others found the master without even looking. A story goes that Mrs. Muktabai and several Bombay devotees had gathered for a picnic near Vajrashwari. As they ate, they spoke of Nityananda, lamenting the fact that three years had passed since they had seen him. At that moment, a dark figure emerged from the jungle at the base of Mandakini Mountain and approached the ecstatic group, and that was him. In 1957, much later, and this is a kind of closing commentary on this period of his life, so in 1957, a Mr. Krishnamurti, not, not the other Krishnamurti, a different Krishnamurti, a journalist and biographer wrote the following, quote, Two decades ago, meaning in the 1930s, Nityananda lived for years in a tree in the heart of the Vajraswari jungle. Once a young man asked him, Man cannot do the impossible, but a yogi can. Won't you awaken the kundalini in me? Moved by his earnestness, Nityananda touched his spinal cord, and in a split second, the seeker experienced the dynamic charge of the kundalini. This is again written by this fellow Krishnamurti. The confines of mortal hope blended with the divine light. He felt as if a magnesium wire burned in his head and unfolded a mystery and a wordless music. So says the journalist. When Kundalini returns to its spiritual cave, the light is extinguished and the flute broken. Only when one puts the eyes of logic and reason to sleep can one grasp reality's mysterious flash. For an intellectual understanding of Kundalini, we can read books, but in our own very day, we have Nityananda as a living emblem of the Kundalini process. This is four years before he passed. To him, it is not a mental trap, it is action. <laughs> Whatever that means. From the moment Nityananda opens the first window of our consciousness, we no longer feel bound by time. Indeed, his greatness lies in time's annihilation. The past becomes a memory. We cease to reach toward future passions. We live in the intuition of the moment. This transforms us from invalid to knower. So you can just see, everybody's got their own take on things. Uh, I certainly <laughs> wouldn't use old Krishnamurti, journalist, biographer, um, as any teacher of metaphysics. Um, but for some people reading that, uh, you may feel resonance. I feel no resonance with his way of description. Um, but it's good for you, good for him, right? So what people say is good for them, or it makes sense to them, or it's where they are at. It may be irrelevant to everyone else, and it would be mm, potentially relevant to anyone, and potentially irrelevant to everyone, and potentially clearly, generally useful to some somewhat. It's useful for me somewhat to hear you speak somewhat. <laughs> uh, and that's the situation. It's extremely partial quality of uh, understanding, comprehension, communication, connection. The connection, the connectedness between even a person's mind and experience and their words to express it is faulty. Mm, expression doesn't uh, convey the totality of one's experience. Then that uh, that expression is heard by multiple minds 
who further apply their own their own biases or subjective uh, process to the interpretation of what is inevitably uh, a very limited expression of a person's experience or knowing. And then they uh, do something with that internally or with mine, um, make use of their partial understanding of a partial expression of someone's experience and then say something back. And like the telephone game, over time, indeed, um, the seed of the original experience of the first communicator um, and the, even the topic under discussion gets diluted and and uh, modified heavily. And so this man says we cease to reach toward future passions. Yeah, right? Yeah, in a moment, maybe. But what, he had no more passions in his life? Of course he did. <laughs> you think he, what, became a monk and uh, a yogi the day after? Or dropped... Um, all of his distortions? Of course not. And so, I don't know, um, communication in this world is very limited. Understanding is not of your density, said Ra. This is a very big deal, actually. I mean, to me, it's a big deal. Because everybody's yak-yakking, and very few people know that they're talking um, is quite incapable of profound comprehension of anything. And and I don't know, we want to explain things because we want to understand or we want others to understand what we understand. We want to understand truly, not tiny, tiny, but actually all of our understanding is minuscule. <laughs> minuscule of everything. Um, so I don't know. I mean, that's a very big deal to me. And um, that's why great yogis many times don't speak. They just smile, or they just nod, and they just, uh-huh. Mm -hmm. That's what you think. That's what you say. And um, <laughs> um, communication, uh, profound communication, comprehension, mutual comprehension is not of this density, seems to me. Uh, I'm harping on it just because... Um, <laughs> at the end of the day, at the end of the road, after years of study and understanding and seeking to know and communicate, I can see how it's really um, negligible <laughs> compared to what we're uh, the object of, of consideration. The reality, the totality of the reality of all that we seek to understand is so far greater than how much we understand and how much we understand by our experience is so much greater even than our expression, verbally, and um, others' comprehension of what we said is even less than uh, that, or l less fitting to the, to the matter under discussion than even our expression. And that's the way things go here. <laughs> uh, no surprise there's lots of interpersonal conflict. So, let me go to the next chapter. There are many, many, com com many, many topics I could look into. Um, but let's, in respect of the text, let me read the next chapter. 
So the next chapter we look into is Ganesh Puri at the beginning, 1936. So at this point, Nityananda is about 40, and he's built these caves. He's um, built, facilitated um, the building of a number of structures for yogis in the future and to help the local community um, develop out of the jungle condition it was in uh, when he arrived. Then he started to go north. After he did that, he went further north, which is um, Ganesh Puri, which is not too far from Bombay. I, I almost went there, but it didn't happen. So Ganesh Puri, the beginning, 1936. Nityananda arrived in Ganeshpuri one morning in 1936. Some people think that he came at the goddess Vajreshwari's bidding. Uh, we know he did tell Kanangad devotees of his intention to visit the Bhimeshwar temple, but he said nothing of moving there. In those days, Ganeshpuri was surrounded by a dense jungle inhabited by tigers and other wild animals. Access to the temple was via a footpath over a hill known as Mandakini, right, Mandakini Mountain. The area's only other inhabitants lived on the west side of the hill at a sanatorium. There, a doctor had diverted sulfur water from the natural hot springs into specifically constructed therapeutic baths for his patients. That, that place still exists, actually. There's a hotel associated with that sanatorium. Sanitarium. When Nityananda reached the Bhimeshvar temple that morning, he was wrapped in a checkered blanket. There are pictures of him, actually, at that time. Thinking him a Muslim, the attending priest's young wife, Gangubai, refused to let him enter the Hindu shrine. The master said nothing and retraced his steps to sit by an old well overgrown with vegetation and full of stones. The note is that when the well was later cleared, these stones were touted for their healing power and eagerly collected by Ayurvedic physicians. Late that afternoon, a Vajreshwari devotee arrived and found him still seated by the well, hearing the tale the devotee hastened to rectify the mistake, meaning that the priest's young wife, Gangubai, refused to let him enter the temple because she thought he was Muslim. Apologies were immediately offered, and soon a temporary structure was built for Nityananda on the temple's west side. It was small, with barely enough room for him to crawl inside and rest. Before the door stood an ancient peepal tree that was home to many snakes, as he had done with the cobras in Kanangad, Nityananda issued vibrational orders, meaning telepathic, and they disappeared into the jungle except for one. The oldest cobra would not leave, preferring death at the master's hands. The story goes that one day he instructed devotees to stay away, and sometime later announced that the old snake's wish had been granted. He then ordered villagers to cut down the enormous tree that was now festooned with sacred thread and sprinkled, the, and sprinkled with red kumkum powder used in Indian rituals. <clears throat> and so that snake asked to please, um, please help me leave my body. 
basically. As word spread of Nichinanda's arrival, villagers from surrounding areas began gathering around his hut in the evenings. A large pot of rice porridge, of which the master would partake, always stood ready for them. <clears throat> Devotees were soon flocking to Ganeshpuri as well. To accommodate, to accommodate them, a building was constructed east of the hot spring water tanks. At first, <clears throat> due to a lack of potable water, visitors st- only stayed the day. However, once the old well was refurbished, sulfur water was used for everything. One particularly hot afternoon, the master offered a plate of rice with spicy pickle sauce to a visiting devotee. It's a sort of like a mango or lemon pickle or lime pickle. It so happened that the woman found sulfur water distasteful and declined the food, knowing she would crave something to drink afterward. Nichinanda again held out the plate to her, saying, Don't be concerned, you will drink rainwater. Venturing a look at the blue sky, she still ate nothing. Within minutes, however, a solitary cloud appeared overhead and rain poured down. The master said, Go and get your water and she jumped up and collected rainwater for both of them. Within a short period of time, three rooms were added to the temple's south side to form a compound. Today, this is called the, quote, old ashram. Nichinanda's room with its small cement porch stood in the middle. There were two adjoining rooms that were fully enclosed, one on each side, but the walls of his room only rose seven feet, and had a knee-high sliding panel for a door. The dirt yard in front was paved until 1943. Until then, he saw devotees in either the building near the bathing tanks or the temple quadrangle. So this is real infrastructure discussion. Can somebody unmute, say hello, and remute? Hello. Hello. Okay. That really did it. Thank you very much. And so, going on. So we're talking about this um, ashram here at Ganeshpuri and how things were developed in the 30s and into the 40s. The only route to the ashram at that time was a winding footpath through the jungle. To reach this path, Visitors had to use the neighboring sanatorium's private road. Soon the caretakers there, disgruntled at devotees getting off the bus at the sanatorium gate, began charging them a fee to use the path. This practice continued until one day words and blows were exchanged. Hearing of the incident, Nichinanda asked nearby villagers to recruit 50 laborers. The next morning, with the master working alongside them, They began to clear trees and build a proper road from the ashram to the bus route, which incidentally still conveys regional buses to Ganeshpuri. At the time, however, the local British, the district's British magistrate and forest officer received complaints about the unauthorized project. They asked the local forest ranger, who happened to be a devotee, for a complete report. Fearing the worst, and at Nichinanda's insistence, the man complied. He described the new road as a public service 
and stressed the growing influx of devotees needing access to both the ashram and the Bhimeshwar temple. Finally, he concluded that the district benefited considerably from the master's efforts and that he really should have undertaken the project himself, <clears throat> meaning the forest ranger talking, getting this to the magistrate. The curious British officials drove to Ganeshpuri after reading the report, parking well beyond where the Badrakali temple now stands. They approached the ashram as Nityananda sat watching them. Suddenly he turned his back to them, and they returned to their car. The magistrate later admitted to his subordinates that, while rarely moved by charitable thoughts, upon witnessing how this simple yogi worked to help the local poor, he decided to take no further action. So, he had a little spark of heart chakra activation, and um, uh, didn't even bother to um, confirm the report and talk to Nityananda about that road and all the things going on. So, <clears throat> I think I'm going to save the next chapter for next time. Uh, the next chapter is uh, the old ashram, and that's 1936-1950. Uh, that's part one. And so, we're getting close to the end. In fact, next time we probably will will conclude the first half of this book, Nityananda in Divine Presence, with the two chapters, the old ashram, parts one and two, 1936-1950. Uh, and so this is the movement from the south to the middle, from Kanara and uh, particularly Mangalore, Udipi, Kan uh, Kerala, up to the Bombay region, which is more mid-section of India, and that's Ganeshpuri. Uh, all sorts of very interesting um, features that can be um, discussed. Um, I'm going to kind of wrap up soon here. We're almost at the hour mark. Um, he doesn't explain himself fully to anyone. Um, and yet he seems to be helping everyone. Uh, that perhaps is a resolution of this uh, bitter matter, bitter to me, that understanding is not of this density. Um, the inevitable, the, the intrinsic shortcoming uh, or shortcomings or, or limitations of finding satisfaction by knowing. <laughs> I find a lot of satisfaction by knowing. Certainly it takes away the angst of questions issues for which I feel um, distressed to some degree where there's a question unanswered. I'd like answers. This kind of thing. Certainly there's that satisfaction of finding an answer and going dismissing or leaving that distress. There's also the joy of clearly explaining or seeing. Um, the love of truth, right? There's the joy in that love of truth and the joy of discovering and comprehending, or a little, whatever degree we can, or I can. Um, and yet, um, Nichiranda is shown as a man of action and few words. Um, Chittagash Gita, he didn't write, the devotees wrote it. 
he spoke what he spoke or those verses that were put into made as into such Chittagash Gita um, which is another document which we might get into um, coming out of trance not because he was serving by word and service by word is uh, critical he was beyond that level uh, it seems to me uh, as very commonly great teachers build temples very common great teachers facilitate the construction of um, uh, buildings, houses, ashrams, uh, monasteries, temples, where good work can happen, where spiritual transformation. So they establish the fields in which soul transformation or uh, consciousness transformation may occur. They facilitate the transformation of those who they interact with. They facilitate the transformation of collectives and groups of individuals by building places for that to happen. Here, <laughs> today, we're really at the end of the line. Uh, 3D is um, on its way out, seems to me. Um, and I'm not at this level of a great teacher who builds temples. And I wouldn't want people to follow me, frankly. I don't even like that, because today it's such a mess. Uh, the whole realm of um, guru, self-professed gurus and their followers and their communities. It's really very complicated or political and um, heavy, it seems to me. But at his time, or in his work, did yogis actually use those caves in uh, Kanangad? I guess so. Um, today, no. Today they are visited very infrequently it seems to me but there may be um, non-physical entities making use of those facilities actually and so you see that he can deal with snakes and he can deal with train engines and he can uh, urinate indefinitely and he can uh, change the mind of British magistrates and he can transmit energy through an umbrella uh, and he can see the future in terms of what this area is going to be 30 years from now. Um, and so everything he's doing is of service, and um, he's very capable of interacting uh, multidimensionally um, with beings at different levels of evolution, including the animal and the non-human meaning the, the non-physical, the astral and above. Meanwhile, at that earlier time, um, he needed to be told, he needed to be persuaded to stay in his body by those who actually knew better than him that it wasn't time for him to leave. So anyway, there is a... <laughs> um, there is a cosmological tableau or landscape. <laughs> it's sort of a... Uh, time-space dreamscape or lightscape, a light dreamscape of multidimensional reality cosmology that we can get a sense of from reading the story of Nityananda. Uh, certainly 
this is one way that a finished being uh, acts during a human incarnation. It, the whole thing looks like magic. The whole thing looks like a dream. He's just sort of uh, gliding through um, time and space. And um, again, uh, focused on doing rather than saying. And uh, yet very clearly aware of the differences between the differences in mind of those approaching him and those who can benefit and those who are are unable to benefit or need a corrective or um, some kind of harder catalyst that's not pleasant uh, to um, help them get back aligned to receptivity in some sense. So it's very um, interesting indeed. So next time we'll take, we'll go to uh, some of the last chapters here, uh, the old ashram parts one and two, and uh, I hope it's been useful. So please take good care of yourselves in the current um, complicated and um, emotionally charged global situation. Somehow we'll get through it. Um, those from light return to light and um, as Nityananda said to that one woman about her chart something like yes Saturn is there and therefore there is a, a real um, crisis in her chart astrologically but I think in many ways in the world today it's it's very serious distress and God is here too, or there's higher um, love light power available uh, and very present. It's um, uh, occurring within uh, a field uh, under the guidance and some degree of protection <laughs> of um, vastly aware, understanding, benevolent beings who do care about humanity and love us, um, yet um, the consequences of free will have got to be allowed to un unfold. And so that's, I think, we see. Uh, we're, we're, for those with eyes to see or those who love truth and those who can keep um, in balance we can learn tremendously during this phase as well as grow in love wisdom. So, with that said, please take good care of yourselves. Have a good week. See you next time. Good night.